it's had 20,000 downloads now. That's awesome. It's, in, it's 20K, which is insane. That's, that's awesome. You, Congratulations. You should, have, you should have seen the download. I tripled the downloads on the first day that after the uh, – after the Was it Gizmodo? Gizmodo. Gizmodo. Gizmodo wrote a very, very short article about it. Yeah, nice. I read it. We just and, tweeted it. And, yeah, it was – it just completely blitzed my downloads and everything. That's cool. So, did were the ads working for your big download day? They were. They d- didn't do much. I was going to say, total, are you an ad in total? It's made, I think, eight dollars out of ads. This is like nice. a, basically a basically a month after the ads kicked in. I think also. Anyway, it's, take, it's, take that to the casino. <laughs> <laughs> Put it tri- all on black. You could triple that. Yeah. Um. What about conversion? In terms of uh, because the, you the conversion is still the conversion has been low. I think I tweeted at um Vitici because uh, he he tweeted about our episode yeah, last week because yeah. we mentioned Mac stories. Yeah. Uh, and so I tweeted back at him to let him know that the conversion rate from um from his article was higher than any of the other articles, even like the bumps That's have been. Um. The it's not a whole lot and it's not huge, but I mean, on on the day of the Gizmodo article, I had ten thousand, a little over ten thousand downloads, and I made a hundred and eight dollars from in one day from the that's great from the uh, in-app purchases. So that's probably 50 about fifty, maybe a little bit more. What's that percentage? Half percent. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's pretty good. I'm not complaining. Yeah, but uh, it's it's not as much as. So I don't know that I can go back any further on this. I can only go back a month. It's still pretty good. But his was his was higher. So he he sent through about a thousand. So about ten percent of the wait. Yes, ten percent of the uh, the downloads, mm. but made thirty dollars. Right. So cool. that's a, that's higher in. Mm. Um, in convert the conversion rate is higher, hmm. um, fairly significantly higher. But it's really interesting. That's interesting. Hmm. That I think it's just different it, sites like, have audiences who are more or less inclined to part with cash for an app they enjoy. Yeah, well, I I think like the other thing as well is uh is that Gizmodo brought out all of the Android fanboys. Hmm. Uh, they so like you're, you're working on an Android version. <laughs> I'm not at liberty to discuss that <laughs> at this time. <laughs> Windows Mobile next. Yeah, yeah. Nobody has asked about Windows Mobile, and therefore, <laughs> it probably will never happen. The people that have got people coming over to my house after this, they both have Windows Mobile. There you go. Big wow. market. I've met like Two three people. people in my life that use a Windows Mobile phone. Just that Nokia. They both have it. It's a Nokia with it on mm-hmm. it. That that um, watch me call it one with the awesome camera. Yeah, that's the one. I saw it in a uh, film clip at the hairdresser today. Like really? Something like video hits or whatever it is. Some right. chick was singing some love song about... And she was like... And she was like texting her. Taking a picture on my Nokia. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> it was like, and that's all like full screen, just focusing on the Nokia with running <laughs> Windows Mobile. I'm like, wow, how much did they pay for that? Oh, they do that all the time on TV. Yeah. yeah. So much. So often Grey's you Anatomy see, has Windows you see, Mobile, doesn't it? Uh, the tablets. I don't Windows know. They don't watch Win- Grey's Anatomy, but there are, there are, there are shows... Show. Um, Psych does it a lot. They use they Bones. use Windows Mobile. 
Um, there used to be this thing where the baddies would use Windows computers and the goodies would use Macs. You know, Apple never paid for that. No, they just like loan out the equipment there. It just happened. Yeah, but they they do they do pay for it now though, because you, you'll see at the end of an episode you'll see promotional consideration paid for by Apple Corporation. Paid. Yes. I don't think they. Paid. I still don't think they pay. I think they just give the gear, loan the gear. Like if you want, if you're filming a, creating a film, and you want some phones to use, Apple will let. You see, you. You, 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 it's funny though because in when they use Apple products, the Apple products will just be there. But when they use Windows Mobile, it'll be like, here's a big screen version. Yeah. Actually, you know what? Intelligence does it. Intelligence do it all the time where they're doing like zooming in on pictures and stuff. And they're like, oh, this is so tech. <laughs> maybe, maybe, we just notice, maybe we just notice the Windows Mobile stuff more because we never not, ever... Like, well, it's Apple not be- stuff it's you're because used it's to in your around. face. They stick yeah. it in your face. They'll do a specific a specific cut of like a, a shot of you know using the phone and they zoom into something like the pinch pinch gesture or whatever the apple product will just be there and they'll just use it and they might like you might see the back of it with the apple logo but it's not that you it's not like they ever actually make a big, make a big deal Mike, of it. So this this film clip I saw had the exact same thing. Right? It was like focusing on actual features of the phone. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if that's part of their like promo contract. It's like I think it is. You know, we'll because they you, always you, do you've that. You've got to actually feature our UI. That's they the always do that. They actually like yeah, they I actually agree. do things with the UI. It's weird. This reminds me of something that I don't know if this is the show or not, but I'm going to mention it anyway. That I stumbled across a while back, which is on the Australian Communications and Media Authority website. ACMA. So this is only really relevant to people who want to promote stuff to Australian audiences. Um, there's a list of mobile phone numbers, which are fake numbers specifically to use in right. film or fiction oh, or whatever. That is kind cool. of kind of like the five 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 numbers in the US. Yeah. Hmm. Um and so if you're doing screenshots of like apps that have phone numbers and you want to have a phone number on screen, you could actually go to ACMA's website and get right. a list of numbers you could use for your Fake. What happens if you call them? I don't know. I want to find out. Call one right it. now. I'll report back. <laughs> okay. Keep talking. This is the show, is it? Apparently. So it uh, the, U- the, the US has we'll 555 cut numbers. We'll cut it out. We should link to the... Uh, the reason I found it is because someone I follow on Twitter had tweeted links to the UK one. And so I asked ACMA, is there an Australian version of this? And they're like, yes, there is. Right. Yeah, because the 555 five, five numbers, any, any number that has the 555 five area code, I guess... Is fake. Is fake. Cool. Um, because they don't have- I find have- it weird that they actually specifically reserve numbers for being fake. I suppose the, if they don't do that and people just picked any number that wasn't actually a real number at the moment, you run the risk that at some point somebody, it gets allocated somebody to being a real number. number. Yeah. Um, people call it. But yeah, the yeah the 555 numbers are in the States that are all fake and you can- any any time- you have called is not connected. Please check the number before calling There you again. go. Just, right, a it's just not a number. Yeah. It would be nice if it said, you know, the number you had called is a fictional number. <laughs> Please stop dialing they have, numbers uh, you see on television. All types of numbers. You people know, do it all the time. Numbers. That's and that's why they they use fake numbers is because people do it all the time. Because they think it's a real number. It's the same. It's They're the like, same I, as I like, want to speak to that character. Website URLs that appear on television shows a lot of the time aren't actually real. In America, they had some law. Did you see the whole Letterman thing about this? No. Letterman just like made up a URL. Just he was cracking a joke and he made up some URL. And because they have some law that he mentioned it on TV, 
Right. They now had to purchase that domain, and so they had this like <laughs> fictitious <laughs> website about it for a while. I've, it was funny. I've done, like I've gone, I've watched television shows, seen a URL, typed it into the browser because I've got the computer yeah. sitting right there or whatever, and it's come up with like nothing. Some TV shows um, do it as a How I Met Your Mother registered all their, and they had like little things about it for that yeah. season. There was some really good ones. Uh, what TV shows are you guys watching where they just mention URLs? How uh, Much Mother? How Much Mother does it. <laughs> what do they mention URLs about? I don't know. They'll Lily do- and Marshall sell all their furniture.com. Yeah, and it was real and it, you could buy things from the set. It was, there was a whole bunch of stuff. It was, they were having a garage sale in the episode or something. There's a whole bunch of them that do it. They just like they'll just use a URL because it's like a band's URL because they're you know it's a cop show and they're investigating the death of a band and somehow the website comes into the mix. Barney's video resume dot com. That was his resume. <laughs> yeah, that was that one is definitely real. I've looked that one up. It was hilarious. It was. <laughs> I'm obviously missing that guy a whole. Is awesome. He's yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was original. How much mother up until about season five when it all just went rapidly downhill. But I'm sticking till the end because I've only got three episodes oh, you, left. You can't not stick to the end. It's yeah. so close to the end. You just have to watch it all the way to the end if you've already started. Who's the actor that's on How I Met Your Mother that was like on something else once? Is it Doogie Howser or is it Dawson? Yes. Doogie Howser. Doogie Howser. Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Patrick Harris. I just got a Netflix subscription. Netflix is the best. I've just finished yeah, watching good. House of Cards actually after oh, talking about last season week. Season two. Holy. Wait, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, stop, stop, I'm just not, clarify, what I'm, are you watching, season one or two? I've finished it, I've finished, finished everything. Right, stop now. I'm not, I'm, stop no, 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 I'm just no, saying, no, I'm just saying, la, 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 the la, show la. in general, holy How crap. How crazy was it when that one guy <laughs> did that thing to the other guy? <laughs> oh. And how about that conversation <laughs> that that person had with the other person? With the other one listening? Yeah, you know? the other yeah, one was yeah, listening, like, oh man, it was crazy. Whoa. No, I won't tell you, but it was like, it's holy great crap. Ex- isn't that a great example, though, of... I, I just wish that there was more of this stuff, like first-party, interesting, new quality content. Because Netflix have made... They produce House of Cards, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Except that what's not awesome is the fact that we've got to pretend that we're in the US in order to actually watch it. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of people consider that completely legal. It's, it it's grey. Mm. No, no, it's non-grey. Cho- choice. The like a lot of like legal it, opinions are that it is actually legal to pretend really? that you're in the US in order to uh, in order to get yes, US content. Be- because so you may very well be in breach of the terms and conditions that Netflix ask you to agree to, mm. and they continually get you to agree to it at the moment. But there may not be any legal recourse because you've not broken any laws. In Australia, we've got a free trade agreement with the US, which means that we are entitled to content. So I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> but <laughs> we've, uh, we've covered this before. The, uh, choice.com.au, which is like an Australian yeah. sort of consumer organisation, published a whole of articles about how to circumvent geoblocks because in their view it's perfectly legal to do so. That, um, that the f- things that, in fact, geoblocks are an artificial restraint to trade and we've got free trade agreements with a lot of these countries that say that we should have ac- equal access to uh, right. things in their market and they should have equal access to stuff but in I our think market. It's, I think it's still grey because no one's actually taken it to court yet because there's no specific law saying we can or can't do it. Right. Therefore, everyone's argument is based on unproven laws that someone mm. has to go to court, there has to be a ruling made, and then every other case from that point forward references... Yeah. Uh, the, so, the so thing if is, Netflix wants like, to sue for watching, go. for paying them to watch their content yeah. outside and of that's the, the market, thing. They, they're, they're not going to do Netflix. It'll be they're the, welcome to. 
It'll be the content provider. So, which in the case of like in the case House of, of House Cards, of Cards is Netflix. Netflix is the content provider. In the case of another show that's airing on the US television, but from another network, they may have a problem. Right. So, Game of Thrones, HBO, HBO may have a problem, and actually, uh, Foxtel may have a may, here in Australia may have a bigger problem because with it because They've they are technically the exclusive, the exclusive rights. rights. <laughs> which is friggin' stupid. Yeah. Don't get me started. I think we've discussed this we've discussed, ad nauseum in the past. We, we have discussed this. In fact, our first episode, which I actually listened to again recently, um, our first episode we spent like 20 minutes talking yep. about content so let's content agreement. That. You know what else we could talk about today? Well, let's, uh, let's, let's do the opener. How about that? How about sure. we start with that? Hi, you are listening to Mobile Couch. This is a show where we talk about mobile development for mobile devices or just development for... I don't know. This show is hosted by Jake McMullen and Ben Trengrove. Hello. And also by me, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly. And this is episode number 27. We're getting old. I don't know. That's that's just me. (laughs) Yeah, you you are old. Not getting old. You just are old. That's why I need to sit in this cosy little armchair. Yeah, while the rest of us sit on squeaky stools. Mm. So... I don't know that we have a whole lot of follow-up. We do have some follow-up follow up from regular friend of the show, Arby Beckett. We do have. Who asks, yes. asks the questions, why would you disable ads for beta testers? Isn't the whole point of beta testing to test the experience that your end users are going to have? Yes, it is. It is the point of beta testing. Beta testing. Beta. beta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... In the case of the ads, like the, the thing about the thing, the reason that I decided not to show the ads to the beta testers is because, well, I mean, a they're kind of annoying, um, <laughs> and, and you're being nice, right? So, and so I'm this being is nice. your, your way right. of saying thanks. Thank, this thank is my you way for of saying time thanks. To test the thing. Have uh, a version without ads. And so, in even in the beta, in, even in the beta version, the ads aren't shown. Um, the other reason is is that I mean, in the case of ads, right? The ad code, and granted, last week I mentioned that I did actually mess up my implement my implementation of the ad code in the original release. Mm. Uh, but had I actually done proper, like a proper check of the fact that whether or not the ads were in in the first place before that build went out, um, the ad code, like implementing the ad code so that they show ads, is not is it's not that hard and once you actually have it implemented it will show the ad like show the test ad and like that's that's it you don't do anything else like so i have a follow up question right if you had included ads in the beta versions do you think that may have made the process of putting ads in the production version easier like would you have I don't think encountered so. some of the bugs sooner no because the major bug right there was there was a several major bugs with the with the ad the ad code that i uh, that caused me my major amount of grief that i had that I talked about last week. The first initial thing was the fact that I had a flag, which I have subsequently removed, uh, that basically um, turned the ads on and off for a particular view. That was set to basically turn it off, even though the code was actually implemented. Um, and so there was no ads showing. But when you're testing the, like when you're testing the app, ads come in intermittently. They don't show up all the time. Um, you don't have a hundred percent fill rate on the in the beta version because you don't have that in the production version either. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, Jeez, that must be hard. So to just test. because just because the ads show the ads don't show doesn't mean it's not implemented. And so technically, I would have I should have seen it. Um, it it wouldn't have really needed to go out to a beta tester for me to actually check mm. check that. But it's Look, one of those things where you just kind of forget that it's there. So I can completely understand why you would have that gesture of goodwill of removing ads from your beta version. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Arby's got a little bit of a point in terms of. I think it always makes sense to try and keep the test environment as close as possible to the production environment. Right. Because I have a theory, antenna gate. I, my theory is that the whole, the fact that you hold this phone funny and it makes the signal lower sure. came about because Apple was always testing with their devices in some sort of weird secret squirrel box so that no one could see what it looked like. Yeah. So all their field testing, no one was actually holding it without a case because they were so secretive about yeah, I agree. what it looked like. I mean, um, that's exactly what happened. And then the first time <laughs> they take the case off, they're like, oh, man, who knew? You hold it this funny way and the signal goes weird. Yeah, look, I I mean, there is. I think it's one of those things where a line can be drawn and I mean, it's it's hard for me to argue this because the the fact of the matter is is that I I messed something up before the code went out. In the case of GIF wrapped, I decided not to use not to show ads to the beta testers because well I'm you know goodwill and also because it wouldn't have made any difference anyway. Mm. The fact that I missed that I, I missed that you know uh, flag that turned off the ads in in the in the view wouldn't necessarily have been picked up by the beta testers anyway. Yeah, sure. Um. If I didn't pick up on it, it wasn't likely that the beta testers were going to. Yeah. You know, to, into, to that extent, I think it's perfectly it's perfectly reasonable to remove the ads from the from the yeah. from the Same. thing. And I think realistically, the, there's always going to be subtle differences between dev builds, beta builds, or ad hoc builds, and and app store ones. There's right. always stuff that you. And the other the other reason that it, like that I think it's it's actually worth it is because it actually tests my turning off code as opposed to the code that doesn't turn it off. That's a good point. Um, I don't set up the the actual, uh, you know, the the in app purchase part of it because that's a pain to actually set that up so that the beta testers can use it because you have to have dev accounts and a sam have it in sandbox yeah. and the device has to be set in-app, up so that it would like work. Testing in app purchases is just painful, isn't it? Yes, it is it's the worst. Um, yeah. But and it's not really the sort of thing that you can properly get a like just get regular users no. to test. Um, I found like I've it's been ages since I've done it, but whole the whole having to create iTunes Connect users that are test users, but you've got to use email addresses for them that are real email addresses. And mm-hmm. once you've used it, like if you've messed something up in creating that test user, you can't use that email address ever again. Yeah, to create it, it actually creates user. an Apple ID. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, sorry, someone's already registered with yeah. that email and address. And the other thing is you can ruin one. So you can ruin a perfectly good test account by trying to accidentally sign into the normal app store. Right, exactly. Like, and, and then and, it won't work in either yep. by memory. Yeah, I did that so many times. And it's like I've gone through all of the email accounts I actually have access to that aren't my Apple ID email accounts. Yeah, so and so what I've essentially done is um, I'm testing the app as if all of the options, additional options have been purchased. Right, which right? is fair enough. Which is fair because, I mean, in, in the end, there is, actually going the to be, there is actually going to uh, be additional functionality based on in-app purchases. Mm. Um, it's not always just going to be ads. And so... At this point, it tests whether or not, for for starters, it tests whether or not you're using the beta beta version. The dev version actually doesn't. Uh, it has all of the options disabled. Like it, it's basically like the production version. Um, the beta version has all of the in-app purchases purchased. Right. Yep. 
and then the release version, you know, is the standard kind of, you know, in-app purchases have to be purchased and go through the, you know, production, the production uh, app store and stuff like that. I think that makes good sense. I think I think that addresses that. Arby's question. I hope it does at least. Oh, look, and I mean, it's it's the sort of thing where you know people might consider that you know consider me to be wrong in this particular instance. But you know what? I do. You're wrong. You know what? I don't care. Bring oh. on the hate mail. No, um, I I don't think you're wrong. I don't, I don't feel strongly about. And this I've thing. and as far as re- uh, removing the the uh, ads for the beta testers in the production version, which has gone out as of yesterday, um, that's working great, and I. Like I don't see why I shouldn't do that for people. Yeah, sure. And cool. Again, it will continue to do that for other in-app purchases, so so that my beta testers, who have dedicated their time, don't have to spend money in order to get additional features. Excellent. Hmm. That's all I have to say about this about the thing. And if you guys, if you have any questions about it or have any comments and or you want to tell me I'm wrong, then you can send us an email. So, and I'm all looking, looking forward to hearing from you. Read it <laughs> and cry. So this week, you have prepared. I know that's incredible, isn't it? That is not reactive code. <laughs> no, still, still working on that. One day I'm gonna. Man, get that my is gonna be good. We have we have something in in the works for that, as we mentioned last week, I believe. But this week you've you've prepared something that is kind of lining up with, I believe, some some stuff that you're actually doing in real life. Yeah. So, um. Ben and I have actually been working on a project together. Thanks, Ben. It's been good. That's okay. Anytime. Um, and it's a beacon, an iBeacon or kind of an iBeacon based app, um, which will be live in the App Store potentially by the time this episode airs. Um, but we've certainly learnt a lot more about beacons having done something in anger with them as opposed to just playing around <laughs> with them. In anger. It's always no. you always learn things in anger, isn't Especially it? Especially in a tight time frame that we had. <laughs> it, it, was it was a pretty a quick ridiculous learning curve. So, um, beacons are kind of a big thing at the moment. Everybody's kind of wanting to play it, with them a it bit. Is people are starting to talk about it more and more, yeah. which is really interesting. I think um, we've probably talked about them a fair bit on this show in the past because it's yeah. something that really interests me. Um, but let's just quickly recap for people that mightn't have listened to a, all the previous episodes about what an iBeacon is and how it all works. Would that be useful? I think that I think that would be be, be useful because I haven't I haven't actually done any study of beacons myself. I mean, I kind of know what they are, but I don't. So basically, so. um they're a thing that Apple proposed at WWDC mm-hmm. last year. Um prior to that, Apple's devices were amongst the kind of earliest adopters of Bluetooth low energy. Um so from the iPhone 4S Every device, including the 4S uh, and later, has supported Bluetooth Low Energy. Um, and Bluetooth Low Energy is really interesting. I don't know why they actually kept the name Bluetooth because a lot of for a lot of people, Bluetooth is synonymous with just draining your battery and right. Burning yeah, no, you, you, it's it's the sort of thing where yeah, if you've if you've got battery problems, then the first thing you do is turn off Bluetooth. Bluetooth. Right. So yeah. Bluetooth Low Energy is a blue or also known as Smart Bluetooth or Bluetooth version four was a basically a brand new iteration of the Bluetooth standard that uses dramatically less energy to right. communicate. Um, and it's enabled a whole heap of new sort of Bluetooth peripherals like this Fitbit I'm wearing. Um, My Pebble use it, uses it, actually. And, in fact, I have uh, – have you guys heard of Knock to Unlock? Yes, yes. Knock to Unlock uses I have it that. as well. 
Uh, so a bunch and a bunch of things, heart rate monitors, um, all sorts of stuff. And so basically, it's a standard that uh, Bluetooth is about uh, radio communications at uh, short distances using, and Bluetooth low energy is using very little energy. So, to my recollection, Bluetooth has a range of a hundred feet, meters, maybe hundred meters. Okay, that's around that on a good day. Yep. Yeah, clear line that's of like sight. Best case, yeah. No, yep. obviously that's best case, which is a pretty big distance. It's actually. a pretty big distance. Um, but really, we're talking about, you know, maybe ten or twenty meters, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you've got to kind of take into account things like brick walls and stuff, which yeah. dramatically I, I lowers often it. Have slight embarrassing situations when um, I'm standing somewhat near to the car I share with my wife, and she's driving it. And I'm talking on my phone, and suddenly it switches to the Bluetooth, Bluetooth. and whoever I'm talking to ends up having a conversation with my wife as she drives (laughs) off. And like I'll always do that and just be surprised, but like, whoa, isn't she like twenty or thirty meters away? And right, um, yeah, or or she'll end up having to listen to some of whatever podcast I'm listening to at the time. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so Bluetooth has a kind of a short-ish distance, but longer than you might imagine. Um, But one of the, the features of Bluetooth low energy uh, was and is that um, for security reasons, um, Bluetooth peripherals will advertise their existence. So if you're interested in uh, pairing with a heart rate monitor or a smartwatch or a Fitbit, it'll broadcast a little radio signal every now and then with some details about it so that uh, an app running on your smartphone could discover it and right. do something. Um but for security reasons, if you scan for Bluetooth peripherals from your smartphone, you'll see them advertised with particular unique identifiers. If I scan for the same peripherals in the same environment, I'll see the same exact same peripherals advertised using a different unique identifier, which is weird. That is weird. Uh, but it's a security thing. So it's it, it's designed to prevent people from being able to like crowdsource um, information the about of- the location of things in the world. Like imagine if this Fitbit reported itself to everyone with the same ID. Right. Then people would be able to know where, where I am in the world by get, getting together and saying, let's all write, share this app that will scan for a Fitbit with a particular ID and anytime we see it, we know that Jake's nearby. Yeah, that would be kind of creepy. You know, so people could potentially track your movement through uh, through place without your without you actually pairing with it or making an agreement. Right. Um, so that's how Bluetooth was for a while. Um, that if you wanted to be able to identify a thing, you needed to be able to pair pair with it. And once you actually connect to the Bluetooth peripheral, uh, you're able to see it with the same ID each time and reconnect because you can you see it again. So right. basically, connect once and say, "I trust this thing." Um, from then on, you get to see it and you can reconnect um, when you see it. Um, but so what Apple proposed uh, was basically making a change to that. Basically, they said Bluetooth is is kind of interesting. Um, the fact that these devices broadcast some advertising data every now and then is kind of interesting. But wouldn't it be interesting if you could uh, detect, if the sa- if everyone could detect the same thing with the same ID, um, it would unlock a whole heap of other possibilities. So basically the iBeacon proposed change to the Bluetooth standard was just basically saying um, if you've got a Bluetooth peripheral and you want it to act as a beacon and broadcast a consistent identifier that other people could then pick up on. Right. Then you can. You just add a iBeacon ID. So the difference between 
between regular Bluetooth and a beacon is that instead of uh, instead of broadcasting a different ID to different devices, it broadcasts the same ID to all devices. Exactly. Right. Yep. That's pretty much it. But the and in addition to that ID, there's also a major and a minor number. Yep. Uh, so it basically gives you three bits of information you can consistently broadcast to anyone who might be interested. Okay. Um, which is cool. The other thing about Bluetooth Low Energy that makes it interesting is that um, the the ad- advertising data that is sent out, so it includes a, a unique ID uh, and two numbers that you can do whatever you want with, um, it also includes the signal strength. So when you receive this signal, um, you know the ID of the thing you're near and you know the strength of the signal that you're picking up. Okay. And it turns out the strength of the signal that you're picking up can be used as a, to infer how close you might be to that thing. It'd be pretty, uh, like a almost like a guess, a guesstimate as opposed to like a. Well, it has a huge distance. assumption in it that we ran into in that that assumes that every beacon broadcasts with the same strength, uh, which in the real world turns out not to be true. But yeah, I guess we'll talk and, about and that the, later. Yeah, uh, so that's basic. The basic idea behind our beacons is add add some information to the advertisement data that's sent out by Bluetooth peripherals anyway so that if anyone's interested, they can pick it up. Right. Um, and so I think that that allows a whole heap of apps where you could do something with the context of knowing you're near to a particular thing. So I think in previous episodes, we talked about ideas around this. Uh, in Apple's session on this at the developer conference, they talked about the idea of an app for a chain of donut shops where when you enter one of the shops, the app would uh, give you a lock screen notification to say, welcome to the shop, um, and then you could do something. Does that mean, if they were talking about donut shops, do you think that might mean that their next product will be a donut? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the iDonut. <laughs> It'll be designed by Johnny Ive. <laughs> <laughs> and it will have a capacitive touch. And it'll be made out of aluminium. <laughs> Sounds delicious. It does. But yeah, so there's a whole heap of ideas where basically you could use the fact that you're close to something uh, and, and do it, do something with that. Um, so I've been messing with ideas around uh, potential like audio tours. You might be in a, a gallery or a museum right. and as yep. you move into a certain space, there's a beacon in that space. Your app detects that it's close and starts giving you audio content that's relevant. And the project that Ben and I have worked on together recently was um, for a for a gallery. Uh, that had a, a sculpture garden, has a sculpture garden, and they wanted to do something in the sculpture garden with beacons. It was kind of, it was kind of there were a couple of things that 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 came together. One is the the gallery was interested in piloting the beacon technology. Um, they had an event coming up in their sculpture garden that they thought it'd be good to have uh, an app for, mm-hmm. and they also wanted an activity that would be fun for kids. They kind of felt like there's a lot of ways in which adults can get information about artworks and be interested in the artworks, but they were thinking that there wasn't a lot for kids and they were interested. And and we had a really, really tight time frame. Um, so we kind of brought all of those ideas together and thought we could do something that used presented information about a limited number of sculptures so that we saved time by not having to prepare a whole heap of content around all of the sculptures in the garden. Um, and so the idea was perhaps we could do a uh, scavenger hunt. So it would be fun for kids. Didn't have to go and find every sculpture in the garden, but we could just pick five examples uh, and they could go around and and try and find these five sculptures. 
Uh, and we thought perhaps we could use GPS um, to do this. Seeing as we were outside, seems like the obvious choice. Right. Yep. You, do you want to? Yeah, okay. Um, so you would think being outside, why would you use beacons that are this new technology, sort of unproven GPS works well? Um, the sculpture garden has quite a lot of trees and we did some, we did some testing and we got pretty much could only ever get 10 meter accuracy off the GPS, which is right. the best you ever get is five. Yeah. Um, so 10 is one sort of accuracy level above that. Um, and that's just wasn't good enough for what we wanted to do. We, they wanted it so that when you walked right next to a sculpture, it would say you are at this sculpture, right. not in your general area. These are the sculptures here. It yeah. should present you information as you are right, right there. Yeah, and so we kind of felt like that that should be possible with beacons, right? That the whilst the signal strength is only kind of a it gives you an estimate of distance, it seems like so Apple's APIs has uh, basically three thresholds for the signal strength. They've got this idea of um, near, far, and immediate. Maybe I should do that around the other way: far, near, and then immediate. And the different, like immediate, is pretty much touching, uh, and near is kind of within about five meters i'm just guessing because it's kind of in my experience so you know the, the, have knowing that we kind of felt like okay this should be possible with beacons that we should be able to actually detect when people are you know within a couple of meters of a sculpture and give them some content relevant to that sculpture or in the idea that we ended up doing which is the scavenger hunt make it so that you had to try and once you were within a couple of meters of the sculpture, you had the opportunity to answer a question about the sculpture, and uh, if you got it right, you'd kind of collect that sculpture as part of your scavenger hunt. And then you'd have to go and find the other other ones. And so, so it actually worked. Like uh, we've did a did <laughs> you a, seem you seem very surprised. Well, given the tight timeframes and and the kind of relatively early stages technology's at, um, I was kind of pleasantly surprised that the ideas all came together and work in practice. We ended up sort of using um, so Bluetooth low energy devices that aren't actually iBeacons in this first instance. So basically, there were a couple of challenges we had to overcome. Um, one of them was there was a couple of related things. Uh, one was we wanted it so that people had to get quite close to a particular sculpture in order to kind of find it. Um, but it wasn't necessarily feasible to attach uh, anything to eat, to the actual sculptures, right? They're works of art. Right. Um, they don't like that. They don't, they don't want you going up and gluing like a little beacon no, apparently little chipboard not. to they the uh, side of a... a bit upset about that. And yeah. even, you can't even have anything visible on it. Right. So even if you got permission to put something on it, it would never be allowed to be visible. No, you'd have to put it out of sight. Because that would change the art, right? Yeah. yeah. And in some cases, the sculptures are bigger than... A couple of meters, like they're, they're they're quite big, and the question is, where would you put the thing in order to, like, if if you were putting a beacon at each sculpture, um, you know, where would you put the one for the big sculpture, and how would you, uh, how would you do it? And secondly, a second challenge is, uh, this sort of thing, it would be really nice if you didn't weren't stuck with the same five that you picked. Would be nice if you could potentially have information about any sculpture that you're near. Right. So we kind of. The, the challenge was uh, how, how can you use beacons to figure out where people, which sculptures people are near without necessarily having a beacon on every single sculpture. And so we started thinking about potentially using, you know, basically triangulation to see if you could figure out where you are based on the signal strength from three or more beacons. So essentially what you're doing is what, um, what 
GPS does, but on a different kind of scale. Because GPS and especially the GPS in your phone will use triangulation to determine, the, like to get better accuracy on where you are specifically. Um, and then you're just basically doing that with beacons. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Ben can... I, I, ben does the maths. I don't really understand. <laughs> How does triangulation work? So if you know you're a certain distance from a point, Right. You can draw a big circle around that point at that radius. Yep. So imagine that. And now you know you're also from another point. So there's some other random point and you're a certain distance from it. Draw a big circle around that one. Yep. And you'll probably find you have two overlapping circles that have a- I'm picturing a Venn diagram here. It looks exactly like a Venn diagram. You're going to have two overlapping circles with two points of intersection. Right. And those two points, you could be at either one of those. You don't yep. quite know where. So that's where you, the third one comes in. You need another circle to sweep through it, which will get- only hit one of those points, hopefully. And then the more you get... So each one will have a slight error. So your circles have a very, like, imagine a sort of wide or faded blurred edge on them. Mm-hmm. So the more circles you can overlap with each other, the more certain or more solid that yeah, edge is going to become. The more accurate it becomes. And that's how it works. And typically, and the reason it's called triangulation is because they use three of them yes. at least yeah mm. typically so, so we thought we uh, this seemed like a sensible approach right um but we had a have we mentioned the ridiculous time frame you have mentioned the ridiculous Turned out time to be frame. three weeks three three oh, weeks from wow. starting to submission ouch um, yeah yeah it was pretty tight we left a week for approval which we needed right down to the last day right um so we thought let's See if we don't have to do this triangulation stuff ourselves. Maybe someone's already done it. Um, and it turns out they have. So it was kind of cool. Another uh, Australian company, um, the, pro- the company's called Art Processors, um, and we may have mentioned them before as well. They're the team behind... Um, we have, because uh, one of them talked at um, One More Thing last year, and we mm, talked about that. Yeah, and mm. I think there was some stuff at NS Camp as well. And um, Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they're behind um, a sort of tour app for a museum in in Hobart, in Tasmania, the Museum of Old and New Art. Um, right. And they'd recently – so they'd been doing – using Wi-Fi in that example uh, mm-hmm. for a couple of years to figure out where you are inside a building based on the st- signal strength coming from various Wi-Fi routers. And they'd just announced a new platform called Enso Locate. Um, the link to that will be in the show notes, uh, which uses Bluetooth low-energy beacons in exactly the way we've just described. So basically uh, – They've got beacons that they sell and they've got a service on top of those beacons that will do exactly what we just described. It'll uh, detect the signal strength you're receiving from all of the the ensolocate beacons that you are near uh, and it will then triangulate your position based on knowing where the beacons are positioned in space and knowing what signal strength you're receiving from each of those. Right. And so what you get is they've got like a web-based tool where you can upload a map of your environment and use configure on that map the location of each of your beacons. Um, and then they give you a, an iOS framework that will uh, load some JSON data from their, their back-end system um, and then has a couple of modes of use. Uh, you can either ask it for the nearest the, the beacons that you're near and it will give you an array of beacons ordered by signal strength. Or you can ask it for an X and Y location and it will then do that triangulation to try and determine uh, your location in map coordinates. So it'll give you X, X and Y within the coordinates of the, the map you've provided. Right. And you can 
either do those calls as a single locate me now or you can register for callbacks every second or so. Where half there. second? Yeah, I think it I think it actually is meant to be every second, but we were getting it every half second. So we may huh. have set up two callbacks. No inadvertently. No way. Or something's going on. But yeah, frequent updates with, with your location changing over time. Okay. And so that was great. That meant that we could distribute beacons around the this the garden and get continuous information about your location anywhere in the garden. So we weren't limited to only being able to show you information about sculptures that had a beacon near them, so long as you were within range of enough beacons that we could accurately get your location. Then right. we can give you information about whatever you're near. So you could basically lay out a grid of beacons across the area and basically track yourself like you would on, say, GPS within that area. Yeah, exactly. Except grid, grid is a nice concept um yeah another real world <laughs> one right of, one of the constraints we had is um we wanted these things to be secure from theft and from the weather and we didn't we had we have a mention the tight time frame <laughs> uh and we didn't want to mess with the garden too much um right so we ended up identifying there were a bunch of uh light fixtures that were already in place oh, okay throughout the garden not so much a grid but irregularly distributed throughout sure um and we thought well if we could include beacons within those existing fixtures it means that they'd be safe from the weather safe from theft and well distributed throughout the space and it turns out to work okay it's patchy right so it's a patchy distribution and the accuracy that we get as a result is patchy there are areas where yeah it proved really challenging let's talk about that assumption i was talking about because yes, that was by far our biggest problem so tell us about that so the assumption that you can calculate your distance from a beacon based on its signal strength right relies on the fact that there is some set equation that hopefully doesn't change too much um so therefore every beacon hopefully transmits with the same strength so when you're 50 meters away you see a signal strength of i don't know 75 but those that would, numbers that would never happen those numbers are completely made up but the point is that definitely does not happen in real life and it doesn't happen to a point that it's actually very noticeable so we had a beacon on top of a hill that was just ridiculously strong for the across the entire garden because it was up higher than every other beacon right okay so you yeah. could see it from much further away so the so line could, of sight is also and a coupled with thing, a problem yeah. that a beacon we had was in a big metal box which turned out to be a giant shield so <laughs> I was going to ask because if you've got them in like light fixtures, oh, the light, light fixtures, fixtures, the light fixtures like... were okay because they have perspex to let the light oh, out. Oh right, and yeah. so you put them actually in the light. Yeah, right. So they go out, the lights okay, but this big metal box was a fire extinguisher box, and it was. Um, so the fact that the fire extinguisher beacon was very weak, and the hill beacon, which was relatively close to this, was very strong. That area was just hopeless because we were just getting constantly pulled towards the hill. Right. So you'd have like this skewing of your location within the area uh, based on the strength of the the beacons. So wouldn't you like calibrate each beacon then? What a great thought, Joe. And that's the next step. So um, we've been working... Have we 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 mentioned the tight time frame? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, We were lucky enough to be one of um, Enzo Locate's first customers using their sort of platform for the first time. And so we've been working really closely with them, feeding back these sorts of issues. Um, And they're working on an update right now that adds that ability. So through their web interface, we'll be able to specify thresholds for each beacon that will basically say, unless the signal 
strength is above a certain threshold, ignore it. Because um, it, it wasn't so much, like, I guess it's twofold, that um, that beacon on the hill, its signal, we received a stronger signal from that beacon at a greater distance than from other beacons. Sure. But we also continued to f- receive a signal, albeit a very, very, very weak signal, at a really, really great distance. And that's though both those seems, things seem mm. to matter. So it it would be really useful to just be able to say, um, if the signal that you're receiving drops below a certain amount, yep. even though you you still think you're within a certain distance of that so that you want to consider it, don't. Just ignore it because it's too weak a signal to reliably act as a proxy for distance. Yeah. Uh, and chances are you're physically closer to other beacons that whose signal might, in fact, you know, be more relevant. Okay. Um. So, yeah, we had to configure on a beacon-by-beacon beacon basis what signal uh, you want to pay attention to. Uh, I think you can also actually specify the, the um, power. Yeah, like a, a multiplier? The beacon should use to in broadcasting. Yeah, that'd be okay. good. Um, that would effectively be a multiplier. Well, mm. right, because what you could do then is you could actually adjust that power so that while looking at your you know your calculated location and adjust it until your location is is more accurate yeah and so then you could essentially do calibration like proper calibration yeah. on a, using a map exactly the the other one of the other challenges we had was um that the xy location that you got from this system varied greatly because the other thing about these radio signals is that they're not c- consistent or constant so you might be standing in one location surrounded by a bunch of beacons getting a particular signal strength from each. Yep. And then half a second later, the signal strength you're getting from each is completely different because it just fluctuates. Very noisy signal. Yeah. Um, and so if you're just using that signal as it is, your the location that you'd derive by triangulating would just jump all over the place. You'd be like, you know, if okay. you're imagining a dot on the map representing your signal, that dot would be moving all over the spot as you're standing completely still. Right. Um, and so we did a little bit to... Uh, improve that. So we did um, some basic averaging. So I think I did the most naive implementation of that initially, where I just went. I think I just literally averaged the you x just and took y the position. Mean. Yeah, I took the mean of like the last seven location updates and sort of said, well, if you're jumping all over the place, presumably I'm just going to average them and say you're at a spot that's somewhere in the middle. And that kind of improved things a bit. But um, and then you thresholded it as well. Yeah, so then I yeah, I did I added some other logic that said if you get a location update that is over uh, more than a certain distance away from the last location update, then assume that the new one must be uh, an outlier, must be just some weird situation right. that's caused. Just ignore it because it can't be right. Um and that kind of worked as well, all right, but it, you know, it added a whole heap of other complexities like um if you're ignoring location updates because they're too far away from your last known location. If, if if it turns out the errors, that's fine. But if it turns out that's true because you ran and you're now in a Kids new like location, to run. yeah, yeah, then <laughs> your, your location just wouldn't update from then on because it'd be like, no, no, all of these new locations are too far from the last good location I had. Ah, uh, um, so, yeah, you know, yeah. There's there could have been more ways of sort of adding logic in there. Ben ended up improving the uh, averaging. Yeah, know. I did what's called apparently called a mode filter. So instead of taking the mean, I did the mode, which is the most common. But there's more to it than that. So what you do, you sort your array of positions. We did X and Y separately. Yep. Then you take the median. Yes. So you take the median or you can take a pile of the median and then average that as well. 
So what that does is it automatically puts away outliers because they'll fall to the edge of the array. Sure. And then you take a middle slice of that array, some random number you have to tune, and then you can take the average of that. Okay. And so that sort of combines Jake's two ideas into one. And that definitely helps. And it works really well if you can average a lot. So if you can keep the last 25 positions and then take the middle 10 and then average those or something like that, works great. The signal becomes really smooth. The problem is you introduce a massive lag to your signal. Right. So when someone's walking, they're constantly going, this seems correct, but I was there like 10 seconds ago, especially if the, a kid, the kids running. we found out don't actually look. But the parents especially will like sort of run after it or walk real fast and then they try and navigate with the spot on the map rather than going, this is where I am, this is where I need to be and looking up. And then walking to that point, and then right, looking so again. Right, so they're buried in the screen. They're yeah. trying to not actually. They're trying enjoying to walk, the sculpture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they're trying to walk the dot. Yeah. To the location, and yeah. the more you filter, the more lag that introduces, and then they just right get very confused. So, right. so it's a mess, there's a big trade off. You, you've balance kind of got to you've got to either have the la- a lot of lag and get better location, or have less lag and have kind of a more jittery, more jittery. Yeah. Yeah, that's where Location. we go to. And again, I think um, there are things that could improve this, and we've been talking to the Enzo Locate guys about how to improve it. Um, they're already working on – so there's a more complex type of filter called a Kalman filter. Yeah. Um, they're already working on a version that uses that approach. Um, so it, it does the same sort of idea. It averages across a number of recent location updates. And also this idea of uh, dead reckoning, which is where – so rather than using – the sensor data with the the beacons it's actually based on the gyroscope and accelerometer to sort of say if we know where you are right now then the from the sensors in the device we should be able to actually figure out where you go from this point which over the short term should work well so the point of dead okay. reckoning is it works really well in very short time frames so it and it also works really well for big heavy objects so if you imagine your cars driving down the road and they probably i would say almost certainly do this with your gps because your GPS update is also noisy, um, but you're a big car moving down the road, you can model the next few seconds and you're going to be pretty bang on correct about where that car is going. Particularly sure. if you know the speed that the car is moving. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So you build a mathematical model of your object and you use that to fill in the gap between your signals, your updates from right. so the sensor. And in, in the case of the car, like a GPS, when you're using your GPS, if you go into a tunnel where you have no GPS signal... Yeah, it would dead reckon it can, the whole it can way. Actually, it can actually still... You'll, you'll notice that most of them will still continue to move because that's what it's doing. It's actually... It's basically figuring out where you probably are yeah. based on the last known information. And the other thing that it's doing is it knows the route you're probably traveling along. Right. Particularly if, you, if you've asked it. for directions, right, and it's yeah. given you a path to drive on. Yeah. So even if it, the sensors are telling it that you're a little bit off, like in the middle of a office block or something, um, it'll lock you to – it'll instead put your little dot on the road because obviously right. you'll be driving along the road they told you to drive on. Yeah, exactly. Um, we we couldn't do that where we were because um, in a garden, you know, there are no fixed There's no fixed that you can area, follow. Yeah. Um, you can go wherever you want. So the end result of all of this is we actually ended up removing, after discussing it with the client, removing the location marker from the app. So it still uses the location updates. Which we were really sad with about. With all of that logic. Yeah, I'm still really sad about because it, it was kind of cool. And it did. I think it takes away a little bit from the app because it doesn't tell you where you are. If I remember correctly, it had a bit of an animation thing going on when yeah, I last saw it. it and was it was kind of, kind of cool. 
It was kind of footsteps instead of like a – that was another idea was that um to try and convey to people the level of accuracy that you can. So instead of putting a pin in the map or a little blue dot that says you're precisely here, actually right. being a little bit more realistic and say, well, we don't know precisely where you are because the tech we can't locate you that precisely. We know roughly where you are. So use an image or a graphic that's rougher, that's less precise than a dot. So we've had this idea of foot footsteps and they would sort of fade as you to show you where you were and be solid where you currently are. And it was kind of working. It was kind of nice. Um I'm hoping it still gets back in the app one day if we if we can continue working with um Enzo Locate to get a version of this that's more that accurate. More accurate. Yeah. Um but yeah, that was the challenge. The, the the system's working accurately enough to detect when you're within a few meters of the sculpture you might be looking for. Um, but the there was certain parts of the garden where we just weren't getting the accuracy we wanted to be able to give people a "you are here" because it was confusing to people when that was wrong. Um, yeah, and you know the worst case we we're getting was maybe five meters wrong. Mm. Um, like we're probably still getting sub five meter accuracy. Like you know you're within five meters of this spot but it might have you on the five meters away from where you actually are um but it was still yeah. better than gps yeah still much better and and certainly probably 75 percent of the garden it had maybe sub three meter accuracy um so you know kind of the take-home message from all of this is the the bluetooth low energy can be really really accurate the gps mm-hmm. signal is much less noisy but i would bet that it is filtered before you see it so it's Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Like they, there's, there's, I mean, you can use the GPS signal, and I, I know this from dealing with some of it, um, with some map stuff in my in a past life. Um, you can use the GPS data that you get, for instance, in the browser. It has things like your current speed and all that sort of stuff that you can kind of that it calculates based off the position. And the last position, it's in all those details. That's provided to you. You don't have mm. to actually calculate that stuff for yourself. So, yes, it definitely is like filtered somehow before you actually get it. It has to be. There's no other, no other, no other way you can get that that data. Interesting fact of the day: Did you know GPS cuts out over a certain speed and at a certain height to stop it being used by missiles? Oh, really? Yeah, oh, <laughs> I right. didn't know that. I didn't. Pretty cool, eh? Is this, you know a, is this something you've encountered whilst flying? Does it cut out from your <laughs> No, you have to go really high and really fast. But, you know, originally GPS was made by the, I think, US? US military yeah. made yeah. it? There was a period and not that long ago where they artificially restricted the accuracy. So that's right. Consumer so consumer devices a, could only get like 50 meter or... There was an error signal inbuilt. Yeah. Um, and when that was taken away, one of the you know, provisions of that was that every GPS chip or whatever must have this cutoff in it to stop it being used in missiles. I've never run into that rockets. in my car. No. <laughs> You're just not going fast enough, Jake. You need enough. to go faster. <laughs> faster, faster. Another. Do you want to know another amazing <laughs> GPS fact? All right, full of them. Please, yes. please. Do you know about time dilation? What is time dilation? So time dilation is the fact that the faster you go or the higher you are actually changes how fast time Right, this is like the general theory of relativity, is it? Yeah, I don't understand it fully. I just know that, well, that sounds like a crazy idea. Mm. But what happens is, so GPS theoretically is very affected by this because those satellites are moving very fast and they're also very high, right? Mm. So the engineers knew about it. All the like physics dudes told them about it and they put the code in, but they didn't turn it on because they didn't quite believe it was actually going to have an effect. And they put the satellites up there and found that their signal was rapidly creeping. 
So over a day, you they had lost, you know, I'd have to look up the exact number, but say 50 meters of accuracy, and they had to turn on this time dilation code to make oh, it actually wow. work. Because GPS works by time. Yeah. So it, it calculates a time between pings, basically, to work out the distance to that satellite. Yeah. Yeah, well, and the, the, the height is affected actually by gravity, not... Yes, so the... Not the, actual height. You're correct. Well. So it's the gravity, not the height. Um, time because, is affected by gravity and speed. Yep. I know this because there's a Stargate episode all about time dilation <laughs> with a black hole. <laughs> I'm so glad that I've got you guys that if I ever need help with, you know, this level of physics, the dilating time, time. Time travel to the future is totally possible. <laughs> Just really yeah, hard. It's, it's, really, it's really difficult to travel to the future, but it's at, at in current science it is impossible to travel to the fast past and the, yes. re- the reason you can travel to the future is using the same technology that was in planet of the apes <laughs> which is where they go by going so fast by going more than the speed of light i think yeah. um that actually like time dilation kicks in and that well, means it, that time travels slower in. you just have to go really fast for it to actually have a noticeable effect right so even going on a um like a round the world flight in a jet they took an atomic clock on that and found it. That time traveled like you know, milli nano, tiniest measurement possible second slower. Wow. Um, so if you go really fast, time goes slow. There's three yeah. ways to time travel. You can you can also go sit next to a black hole and not get sucked in. And um, <laughs> I because and also hopefully not you don't get imploded because there'll be so much gravity that time will go. Yeah, look, I think uh, slow, slower, slow, slower, yeah. slow. I know this because of the Arizona Stargate. Yeah, it's so crazy. <laughs> it just sounds like complete make believe, but it it's, does. It's tested and it works. It also sounds kind of impractical, though. Oh yeah, so far completely impractical. But one day, maybe. Mm. But speaking of time travel, should we travel to a future in which iOS seven point one is available? Hang on, no, it's the present. Whoa, that happened as of like recording this morning. That's Brilliant. incredible. Brilliant segue, by um, the way. Because there's some IBG and stuff there. So I mentioned that the project that Ben and I worked on um, doesn't actually use iBeacons. I was so talking about Bluetooth low energy beacons. Um, so iBeacon is uh, a, both a brand and a standard. Um, Apple proposed it at WWDC last year um, and said, we will document it uh, so that everyone else can adopt it. Which I believe they've done now. Right, about two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, they actually finally... Uh, did document it um, and there's a part of the made for iphone program mfi made for iphone program uh, if you're a beacon manufacturer you can register to be part of the made for iphone program and license the ibeacon brand and right. apple will give you information about how to be an ibeacon so up until two weeks ago that formality hadn't happened heaps of people had reverse engineered it and figured out these basic additions to pretty much all of the information that you provided us earlier on the show yeah Mm -hmm. um and so there were heaps of people making hardware beacons that you could use yep and we'll put some links to a few in the show notes if people are interested the enso locate people uh were doing something similar but instead of actually uh reverse engineering apple's standard and and using it they were basically just adopting a, a similar principle so they had their own uh, persistent identifier that could be seen uh, that wasn't using the exact same attribute that um, Apple does in the iBeacon spec. But I believe they're now joining the Made for iPhone program and licensing iBeacon and their beacons will in the future be iBeacons as well. Sure. Um, but they also offer this layer of 
so the iBeacon APIs um, are based around core location. But despite the fact that it's based on core location, it doesn't actually attempt to give you location information. Uh, what Apple's APIs do is allow you to find out your proximity to a beacon, um, but not translate the proximity to a particular beacon into a location in any, in any coordinate space. Sure. Um, all you end up is getting that, that proximity. Um, so it was really interesting to be able to work with something that sort of has a layer on top of the raw signal strength information and uses it to do this triangulation. Um, but for people that are interested in in playing with beacons or, or creating apps that use them, um, you don't have to use that in that sort of triangulation way. And in fact, in the future, I may well do apps that do because I found it quite interesting. And I think there's a lot of promise there for, say, indoor navigation and things like that. But I also think there's probably a lot of cases where you could use the simpler approach of just saying, um, which beacons am I near and how near am I based on the signal strength to those beacons? Yeah, not everybody's going to need like full-on triangulation and mathematics to get your exact location. Like, yeah, exactly. Beacons are useful for other things as well, like just you know your proximity to um, you know a particular shop or you know your proximity to your garage door. Yeah, I, th- I think that would be a great idea to have a beacon in your garage that when you got close, it could say you're close and you could send a message to your garage door to open the door. Um, I'm going to make that. That sounds cool. Cut, we, we sit, what, so what it would do is you'd have an app on your phone. It would be hooked into your car, which has CarPlay, and it would pop up an alert and Siri would read to you over, the, over CarPlay saying, would you like to open your garage door? And you would say... Yes, yes, please. Yes, I will. Would and up goes yeah. your garage door. That would be awesome. But um, I could just push a button. Yeah, <laughs> you could. But, but you know, but then you have to find the button. Whereas Siri just like is just says, "Would you like to open your garage do you door?" Know, do you know? Do you know what I need an app for to tell me not to open the garage door <laughs> when I've got my bikes <laughs> on the roof of the car? Because yes, I have done that. I've driven into the garage with bikes on the roof. It was terrible and painful. Um. But it's worth just briefly recapping what um, the core location APIs actually let you do with beacons. Um, so basically, it's a really simple API. Uh, core locations location manager uh, has was updated in whatever release gave us beacons. Six? Don't know. Seven. I don't know. Seven. I think it was, was seven. Was it seven? Yeah. So basically, um, you can ask – let me just switch – to my other notes. Um, right. With Core Locations Location Manager, you can create a CL beacon region. Okay. Uh, and what a CL beacon region is, is basically it represents a beacon. So you give it a the identifier for the beacon that you want to know about and you give it a name just to refer to it later in code if you want to. And then uh, you can ask the CL Location Monitor manager, sorry, to start monitoring for a particular region and then you pass it the beacon region you created and then it will start monitoring and then you'll get callbacks for did enter region and did exit region. And that's kind of useful, but there's a few gotchas, which is which is kind of painful. So one of the gotchas is if you start monitoring a region and you're already in the region, you don't get the did enter callback. Right, because you're already in the region. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a more useful method, delegate method, which is um, location manager did determine state. 
for region. So that and that's like that's goes every every. No, it only happens when the state changes. Okay. And so instead of getting a separate did enter and did exit, you get did determined state both when entering and exiting, but also when launching inside. So ah, okay. it launches inside and you get did determined state. And if you look at the state, the state will be inside region. Um, and then when you cross the boundary and you leave it, you get did determined state again. And you get an the exit. state will now be outside. Okay. Um, so in practice, when I've been doing stuff with beacons, I in fact haven't bothered to do much in did enter region and did exit region, but instead do my logic in did determined state because then you can cover all those cases of whether you've just launched inside a region or you've gone from inside to outside or you've gone from outside to inside. Um, so that's worth keeping in mind. A, a really cool thing is that you can get did enter and did exit callbacks even when your app's not running. So if you enable background services, if you go into your, if in your Xcode, it's actually really easy, it's capabilities or something, and you go on to background modes and you turn that on and then you turn on location services in the background, then when you ask your location manager to monitor a beacon region, when you cross the region boundary, so either enter or exit it, um, and your app's in the background, your app will be launched into the foreground and run for about 10 seconds or so. Right, so you can do stuff in the background. Yeah, so you could give a, like a lock screen notification, for example. Right. Um, or, or whatever. Yeah, right. Um, on entering or exiting a region. However, there's kind of uh, another gotcha, which is uh, the did exit region isn't called particularly promptly. Um, but this takes us back to the beginning of this segue, which is in iOS 7.1, they've addressed that. So prior to 7.1, did exit region mightn't be called for up to like four minutes or so after you've left oh, the wow. region. And it seemed to vary based on the state of your device. So if your screen was locked and your app was in the background and you exited the region, the did exit region callback wouldn't happen until sometimes four minutes later. Okay. But if your screen was unlocked but your app's still in the background, it would happen sooner. Right. Um, but still not straight away. Now in 7.1, I've only had a, a few minutes to test it prior to this conversation. Well, but it did come out like this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it seems like uh, it is now consistently calling did exit region, you know, within about 30 seconds or so okay. of exiting the region. And I think the reason it's less instantaneous as entering is Apple wants to be conservative about whether or not you've really left. So they're kind of fudging around we can't detect a signal from any of the beacons in the region anymore. Maybe it's because your phone's in your pocket or maybe it's because you've just walked behind a, a concrete um, column and when you walk out the other side, you'll be back within the radio signal distance or maybe it's just because the right. signal's fluctuated because someone's walked in between you and the beacon. Or So basically they want to wait for a while and see that we haven't seen this beacon for a fair while okay, you must have left the region. Mm, okay. Um, and I think they might be doing a bit of dead reckoning too. They might be sort of Probably. saying um, once we're no longer detecting the signal and it looks like you've moved about 200 metres because there's actually uh, in their location and maps pro programming guide a section on region monitoring and it basically says the user's location must cross the region boundary and move away from that boundary by a minimum distance and remain at that minimum distance for at least 20 seconds before the notifications are reported. So they've kind of got that logic in there but in prior to 7.1 that 20 seconds was sometimes four minutes um okay yeah so those did enter and exit region are, are kind of useful um but there's a few issues with it is that um 
basically iOS will say you've entered a beacon region as soon as it can detect that beacon. And as we mentioned, that could be from like up to 100 meters away if you've got a clear, you know, room. And you mightn't want to do something, you know, give the user information at that great distance. Like if you're in a space where you've got lots of beacons and you actually kind of want them to be right close to it before you draw their attention to it. Let's say like a convention floor. Yeah, or even in Apple's example. Like I've been trying to kind of recreate the experience of the donut shop. Um, I've got a proof of concept app on, uh, where I've kind of got a an app on the iPad that might be sim- similar to a cash register app uh, and an app on my iPhone. And basically I want to kind of recreate what they were getting at in that, that WWDC example of you walked into the shop and as you're approaching the cash register, the fact that you're with near the beacon region triggers some action. And the action I want it to trigger is I want um, something to appear on the cash register iPad to say, Jake's just walked in, photo of me and my favorite order so that the person can start getting my coffee ready and greet me by name when I rock up at the counter. You know, wouldn't that be nice? Hi, Jake. I, I, suppose, I suppose, yeah. I've got I, your I, was latte thinking, ready. I was thinking like how can they connect the two, but then you realize, yeah, the photo. So yeah, as long as, it's a, as long as it's actually a photo as opposed to like a cartoon or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That wouldn't work very well. Although you look a lot like your uh, Twitter avatar cartoon. It's the, it's, it may be. it's the white hair at the front. Um. But yeah, so that's kind of thing I was trying to recreate. Uh, but did enter region is way too called way too soon, right? Like I don't want it to, I don't want to ping up on the the register iPad when I'm like a hundred meters away, just walking past. Yeah. Um, and so the better API to use for that is this one called um, Start Ranging for Beacons in Region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that does is you then get continual callbacks every second or so, which is did range for beacons in region, and it gives you a list of the beacons that were detected within the region. Um, and then you can iterate through that list and the beacons will be able to tell you the signal strength uh, of each. And so you can then do your own sort of thresholding to sort of say, are you within a certain distance of one of those beacons? Right. Um, so that's really useful. Unfortunately, you don't get that in the background. Uh, at least I I can't seem to get it in the background. So are you using, are you using the, are the beacons the phones or is the beacon the cash register? So in my little proof of concept at the moment, I'm using the, cash register, the iPad, as a beacon. Right. Turning it into a beacon. Again, there's APIs that you can do to, say, advertise this iOS device as a beacon. Yep. Um, and then when the phone gets close enough to the iPad, it triggers a, a little thing to say, I'm here. And I'm actually using WebSockets to send a message from the phone to the iPad to say... So could you flip that around? Because the, the iPad, presumably, would be on all the time. Yes. So it wouldn't have to be in the background. It could be on in the foreground all right. the time. And so your phones are then the phones are then the beacons. Except that you can't advertise a phone as a beacon unless the app that you want to act as the beacon is in the foreground. So the customer would have to open the app. Right. Yeah. Um, so what I want is that the customer has their phone in their pocket without an app running or launched. Doesn't have to do anything. Just, walks, to do into anything. Shop, Just walks into the shop. Walks up to the cash register and they're and like, here's your coffee. Yeah, it's ready to go. Um, and you could kind of do that with did enter region, but it's called, I think it's called way too soon. Um, what I've tried to do is on did enter region, start ranging for beacons in the region and then look okay. at the distance. But my did range beacons in region delegate method is not called when the app's in the background, despite I've read on the net that some people say that it is, it can sometimes be called in the background just less frequently than it would be if your app was in the foreground. So there's kind of still, I'm still working through little gotchas around sure. how these APIs work. Um, but, you know, 
I think there's the building blocks there for some really interesting apps um, through what Apple provide in their APIs and through what third parties are doing on top. Right. No, but I, I, I beacons and beacon like the beacon technology in general, just Bluetooth uh, LE is is really interesting and um. I think that like a lot of people have found a lot of interesting things to do with it. Like and like we said before, like Bluetooth LE is being used for things like you know Fitbits and the Pebble Watch and you know this knock to unlock thing, mm. um, which is really useful. And like, well, I'm sure that many people will find many more uses for it. But things like the beacons and stuff is also like it's a it's a kind of a spin off technology as well, and. Um, yeah, it seems like there's a whole bunch of other things that you can do that are completely separate to um to just you know the regular to the Bluetooth stuff. So yeah, what kind of amazes me that iBeacon is basically so low tech. Like it's using really really high tech stuff like the Bluetooth chipset and radio and whatnot to do a really really simple thing, which is just send an ID every second to anyone <laughs> who might be interested. Like. Part of Bluetooth LE is that you can actually run software on the Bluetooth chip itself and you can um, create your own. So there's a bunch of Bluetooth low energy service profiles. You can be a a heart rate service. You can be a temperature service. You can be whatever. Um, You can actually then create your own service type and and write code to run on the chip and write code to run on the peripheral and, and whatnot. So you can, as well as... Knowing about proximity, you can actually have you know client server communications yeah, going like back and forth, com- like a conversation between the two devices. That's and that's what things like Fitbits and whatnot are doing. Yeah. Um, but iBeacons is not doing any of that. It's just basically saying, no, 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 we'll just ignore all of those capabilities of the chipset, and we'll just say we're just going to broadcast a little radio signal with an ID in it that says um, "I am here." Yep, yeah, I am here, and that's it. I, I am here, and I am me. And yep. and when you receive it, you know who's sending that, and you know the signal strength, so you can guess the distance. And just those things is enough to do all sorts of really interesting stuff. Um, I'm kind of excited about what's going to happen when people start doing even more and and when the cost comes even further down. So I should, I guess, talk a little bit about beacons are kind of about $20 to $50. I've seen some for 100 depending on their capabilities, the scale at which they're being manufactured. Um, the ones that we've been using for Menso Locate, um, I can't remember the exact pricing, Uh but somewhere in that order, and they've got batteries that last for um about eighteen months to two years. Okay, uh, which is kind of yeah. So it is really really low energy. Tiny, yeah. It uses tiny. It will continually broadcast this signal uh, for you know eighteen months to two years on a single battery. That's just kind of I find it it blows my mind a little bit. Hmm. So. If you guys want to read anything about you know iBeacons, the stuff that Jake has provided, uh, Jake will be throwing stuff into the show notes and you can find those on our website. Uh, that's mobilecouch.co forward slash 27. Mm. Um, if you'd like to send us an email to tell us about things like you know, how, you, how you're using iBeacons, things that you're playing with, or you, you, know, you want to give Jake some feedback on yeah, that'd some be awesome. projects that he's doing. Uh, and I'd love to hear particularly all sorts, any, whatever anyone's doing beacons, I'd love to hear about. Uh, but if you can help me with my um, why I can't get ranging callbacks in the background, I want to know about that too. And also, if you'd like to, if you'd like some assistance or you have questions about um, using iBeacons and that sort of stuff that you think that um, we might be able to help you with, you can you can send us an email for any of that, any of that. Uh, jump onto our website again, mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. And then there's a form which you fill out and it sends us an email. And then we read it. And then we respond to it probably. 
Now, if you'd like to get in touch with any of us individually, you can do that as well. Jake is on Twitter as jmcmullen. That's J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. Ben is at Ben Trengrove, B-E-N-T-R-E-N-G-R-O-V-E. And I am at Jelly Bean Soup on Twitter and Jelly on app.net. Thank you guys for listening. It's been a great episode once again. It's always, always a great episode. We look forward to talking to you again in another couple of weeks' time. So we'll see you then. Cool. Bye. Bye. Bye.